So sitting up here at the front near these flowers, I've watched them, the buds open and the ants come and now some of the petals are falling. So everything has its cycle. And the flowers open and the petals fall and the retreat begins, it has a middle and then it comes to an end. So this is the last evening, tomorrow we depart. And form changes. And so we came, all of us, from various different lives, lifestyles, situations, and for many of us, there's a sense of relief coming on retreat, a sense of moving from complexity to simplicity, having more time, having more uh, opportunity to contemplate, to inquire inwardly, having a, a concentrated opportunity for reflection on the Dhamma. And in this situation where we're going from complexity to simplicity, we're going from the many to the one, where there all, all there is is just one thing to attend to, what's happening in the present moment. So we left behind our emails and we left behind the car and we left behind the telephone and the cell phone and the text messages. We left behind the emails, messages and, and all the variety of things that are necessary in a life. Uh, what we're having for dinner, what we're having for breakfast, you know, who we need to meet, what we need to talk about, the discussions, the decisions and all of those kinds of things. And coming into a situation like this where there's lovely food that's prepared and offered, a place that's set up, and, you know, a hall that's beautiful and adequate, and time for contemplation, discussion on Dhamma, consideration of Dhamma. So we move from complexity to simplicity, and now we're about to reverse the tide and move from simplicity back into complexity where we pick up the various bits of correspondence and communication and relationship and family obligations and work responsibilities and all the rest of that. And yet, whatever it is that we're returning back into, whether we have a rich mixture of friends and family, whether we live on our own, whether we're single, whether we're in partnership, in an essence, the practice remains the same. There's only what is arising in the present moment. And there only is how we're responding to it. It cannot be other than that. And so what's helpful to remember after a period of time like this is, is, is that, you know, this is one half of the retreat. And the second half begins tomorrow. You know, the second half begins where we are able to challenge our assumptions and conditioning and patterning and get a sense if the depth and the insight and the understanding that we have uh, allowed to develop and bear fruit has some application and relevance in the rest of our lives. So we can see whether the second half of the retreat 
has some application or relevance to the first half of the retreat. Now, in my own personal situation, you know, I started or had an interest in uh, monastic life when I was 17. And it was long before I came to the monastery. And so in the situation that I was in at university and in the work and with the friends and partners that I had, there was a sense of just allowing whatever I was in to be the monastery. Because I had a, a deep understanding that whatever I was committed to would be an opportunity for practice, for opening the heart, for understanding, and for uh, release. And so I would talk about it in that way with my friends, that my world was my monastery. This was long before I became a nun. And then after a period of time, nine or ten years, I ended up coming to the monastery, and then the monastery became my world. And the people and the relationships and the communications and the complexity was held within the context of being in the monastery, and that was my world. And after another stretch of time, about ten years, I left the monastery, and I was traveling as a nun in the world. And again, the world became my monastery. So I still had the precepts of a nun, but I didn't have the container of the monastery. I wasn't around other monastics. I didn't have regular opportunity to hear teachings. There wasn't a monastic community to refer to or to have any sense of identity as belonging with. In terms of my daily associations, it was rare that I saw people of robes. And yet my life was committed towards using what was happening in the traveling and the retreat and the teaching and the contact with the people that I had and the struggle and the loneliness and the fears that emerged as well as the joy and the sense of confidence that eventually began to come forward as all opportunities for practice for waking up. And after a period of time I returned to the monastery and again, once again, the monastery became my world. So I have seen over a period of a couple of decades now this kind of cycling of the world is monastery and monastery is world. World is monastery, monastery is world. World is monastery, monastery is world. The forms change, the situation changes, the context changes, and yet the practice remains the same. Being present with what's arising and responding to it, opening around contraction, finding some space around grasping and feeling things here. So the form changes, we know that. Our bodies change, we know that. Styles change, we know that. The people that we are connected to changes, we know that. And yet the practice remains the same. What's happening right now? And how am I responding to that? So whether it's complex and whether it's memories of the past, whether it's planning for the future, all of that arises in the present moment. Is known right now. And how we're relating to that will very much determine our sense of ease and well-being or our sense of anxiety and fear and apprehension. So we are about to shift gears. All of us are going to disperse. Some of us go to faraway places, some near places. Some people have traveled far. 
Tuesday, Argentania returns to England. Friday, I leave. I spend some time in uh, the States with my mother and then go back to England. So there's a coming together and a parting, a coming together and a parting, a coming together and a parting. And this is natural. There's nothing wrong. Nothing has gone wrong. This is happening. This is natural. And with it, there can be a variety of feelings of joy or sadness or grief or gratitude or delight or fear, apprehensive, uncertainty, not knowing. And that's also natural. Feelings come. And they need to be felt. And one needs to open to the contractedness and resistance as well as the grasping, if only. If only retreats could go on like this forever. If only. And if only thoughts arise in the mind and can be known, we can see our reaction to them. And then again they fall away. Petals on the flowers, they fall away. And yet within this context of considering change in this way, considering entering into the world as monastery, retreat without a center, you know, what does that look like? And how can we do that in a way where there's skill? Now, it often is the case when the monks and nuns are on retreat for three months in the, in the winter time. You know, we come off of retreat and we are, have a barrage of meetings. It's absolute madness why we do this, but never the mind. We have three months of solitude and silence and then we come off of that and within a period of two weeks we usually have five, six, seven, eight full day meetings back to back. You know, and most of us are just about screaming and just all we want to do is run back and go on retreat. You know, it's just the impact. Measuring, managing the impact is a lot. So the fact that we haven't become intelligent enough to do it differently is one thing that needs to be negotiated. But the other thing is, is, is all right, so when we feel overwhelmed and we need to retreat, how can we do that? How can we take care and actually withdraw for an hour or two or a day or half a day in order to have a sense of managing the, the overload that happens with too much contact and too short a period of time? So this, again, is moving from the many back to the one. How can we reduce the complexity of situations in order to return to something which is more simple, in order to allow the space that's needed to digest all that is landed, all that one has received, all that one needs to process? And then after about a month or two, we regain some measure of capacity and we have a little bit more flow with this kind of contact, meeting, busy, changing, moving world. And then again in the summertime or with Avasa time, there's another opportunity for retreat where we have time to go into solitude and silence and let the whole thing drop and just see where we're at. So in our lives, there's built around these cycles of moving into simplicity and complexity. Every year, 
you know, we have periods of time of about a month of solitude in the wintertime and about a month of solitude in the summertime. And unimaginable complexity in between, which may sound familiar, you know, that we have to navigate through and, and manage and sometimes struggle with. You know, how we don't feel we have the capacity to manage. So, registering when we don't have the capacity is part of managing, actually, in a strange kind of way. And yet, it's still, it's useful to consider, okay, so this being the case, what is helpful? So, when we consider the kind of basic structure of lives in terms of the Eightfold Path or the Five Precepts, you know, what's a way of looking at all of this that supports this movement from simplicity to complexity and back again to simplicity. When we understand in a kind of very profound way that the only thing that's possible is what's happening in the present moment, that's it, that's the sum total of the practice, is what's happening right now and how one's relating to it, then that provides a kind of framework of right view that is supportive and independent of the circumstances one is in. When there's a conviction to use every single thing that one experiences in order to wake up, then one has a kind of value that's independent of external circumstances where the sorrow and the grief and the sadness and the difficulty and the gossip that one is, is, uh, experiences or the kind of hurts that one feels or the, um, the negligence or the whatever that goes on in the worlds that we experience, we, we make a determination to use them, everything, all of it, every bit of it, to see where we hold on to, where our minds and hearts close, and use that as an access point for understanding how they can open and release. So when we have a conviction to use everything in our world for waking up, then we have created world as monastery, retreat without center. Within that, there's also effort that can be made, things that we can do, ways of living skillfully, ways of keeping the precepts that are conducive and supportive. So, when speaking about the precepts, one of the precepts which I find the most important precept to reflect on, to consider, to take up, to brighten, is the first precept to refrain from taking life. And on an internal level, to refrain from harming. And to begin to see the ways that we harm ourselves. Relentlessly, endlessly, belittling ourselves and slandering ourselves, judging and condemning, blaming. And begin to wake up to this as a pattern that is actually not conducive taking a stand against harming, not allowing other people to harm us, and not believing the thoughts and the ideas and the patterns that we have that harm ourselves. 
So in terms of the precepts, the first precept says a lot about creating world as monastery. Retreat without center. The second precept, not taking what is not given. Again, in this world of material objects, I don't know if that's so hard for people in terms of possessions and things and belongings. But I know for many of us, in terms of longing for experiences that we're not having, it's quite significant. If only... If only my body didn't ache, if only my mind was bright, if only I had enough energy, if only I had five consecutive hours to sit still with no interruptions, if only I had absolute wisdom, complete concentration, perfect compassion, then everything would be fine and I wouldn't suffer. So we have a long list of requirements that will be needed in order for me to actually look at what's happening right now, see where the grasping is, and release it. And so when we can take the second precept as a mirror for our kind of ways that we delude ourselves, trick ourselves, pretend, imagine, that if we had everything that we wanted, when we wanted it, that would be the answer to all of our problems. And life is not that way. So this kind of taking on board the second precept as an internal reflection is looking at well, the immediacy of the present moment, that suffering ends in the way we examine where we are holding not in having everything we want and getting rid of everything we don't want. But there needs also to be an honesty, a truthfulness about what's actually happening. And that's also very much important in establishing world as monastery and retreat without center. Because a lot of times... We have an idea of what's happening, which is actually far away from what is actually happening. You know. So we set aside a time for sitting meditation, and we spend the whole time fantasizing about a recipe for dinner, or what we're going to do in conversation with somebody, or the shopping that we need, you know, or how we're going to play with our grandchildren. And so we think we're meditating, but the reality is is, is that we're not actually connecting with what's happening. Now, again, we don't need to use that as an opportunity for harming, for judging, for belittling, but just for waking up. You know, we have determined this is a time for meditation, but that's not what's happening. We're not actually present with the movements of mind and heart and body. Where we can be feeling a grief, a sadness. And yet our whole system is oriented towards resisting that feeling in order to struggle to stay with the breath. So again, we think we're meditating. Because we're trying to struggle to stay with the breath. But what's actually happening is we're resisting feeling what we're feeling. Sad. A grief. 
And so the honesty is the capacity to actually see what we're doing rather than go along with the pretend of what we appear to be doing. And as we're more congruent with what's actually happening, then we find, wherever we are, the world can be a monastery. Retreat can be there without a center. The third precept around sexuality is an interesting one, particularly in Theravadan tradition. It's a taboo subject, so nobody talks about it. When you enter on retreat, it stays at the, at the door. It doesn't come in the door. And when you leave the retreat, then that's everyone else's business, but again, nobody wants to say anything about it other than don't do anything unskillfully. Well, that's lovely. Good luck. <laughs> But one's sexuality, one's sexual energies, sexual relationships, for many people, have a, a quite a large impact on their lives. And if the whole thing is kind of reduced to don't do anything unskillfully, what does that mean? And how do you relate to that? And how do you actually bring that into the fullness of your practice? So this, too, is included in part of what you are opening up to in an endeavor to wake up. So whether you're married or celibate or single or whatever, whatever the situation is, it's, it doesn't matter. These life forces are part of what it is to be human, need to be understood, and need to be brought forth into the mind of awakening. In partnership, it's a really profound exploration to see where friendship and kindness and caring and loving Stop and desire takes over. Not as a judgment, but as an inquiry. So in this whole area, I would encourage people to open up and allow the whole of their life force energy, their sexuality, their sexual relationships to be included in part of their monastery. In whatever way that your precept commitment and your partnership commitments allows. You know, and the fourth precept in terms of speaking and the way we talk about each other, the way we talk about ourselves or think about ourselves is enormous in terms of the impact that it has. And so learning how to enter into the realm of communication in a way which is conducive, furthering, not divisive, harmful, dismantling of trust, is a, is a big learning. And I certainly didn't understand that. And it's taken many, many, many years of living in community and getting it wrong a lot before I've had a little bit more sense of how this whole thing works. Now, for myself, I value being able to speak with other people and just being able to offload. But one of the things that I've had to learn is is that I have to choose those people very carefully. Now, 
If there's somebody who I trust very deeply, where I know that I can say anything in the whole world to and it doesn't go anywhere, and that their opinion or their feelings or their relationship will not change, no matter what I say about whomever, then I can speak with confidence in a completely unguarded way. But if that's not the case, if they don't hold confidence, if their opinion is swayed, if their relationships are changed by what I would say about somebody else, then I need to be considerably more discerning and discreet about what I say so that it isn't actually harmful or have repercussions that I am regretful of afterwards. And finding these people, you know, is not an easy thing. There are not very many people that I actually have that degree of confidence with, trust, and can speak that uncensored with. So some people I don't have an open sense of confidence with, but I can go to them and I can say, I want to talk to you and I don't want you to believe a single thing I'm going to say. So I can, I can kind of uh, present it in a way where it takes some of the need to be careful out of it, where I somehow take responsibility for the fact that I need to offload and that what I'm going to say is not to be believed. Yeah. So that I don't necessarily have to trust their own innate wisdom with it, I can actually help support that. And that also helps. Sometimes it helps having people to speak with who are completely outside of the soup so that they don't know the individuals concerned. So they can be a sounding board without there being any kind of ramifications or repercussions with the community or the people that one's dealing with. That also can be useful. Particularly if there's enough trust with them that one can actually be able to hear the reflections that they have in terms of what this stuff is like for oneself, you know, you know, the kind of unresolved, unattended to feelings that one is actually speaking from. And I find all of this very helpful. And so I've learned as I've traveled around the planet to gather up a person that I can offload to, a person who can reflect back to, and, you know, and I gather them, I collect them, I know where they are, I know how to access them so that when things are difficult and I'm struggling finding a way through or just their kind of intensity builds up, I have a little bit more resource that I can access. So learning to find friends, learning to build community, learning to find ways of communicating so that one can both release tension as well as maintain a degree of integrity are all efforts that one can make in creating situations that are conducive for practice unfolding the heart, opening and the mind, releasing. In terms of one's own individual practice, that also is something that can be cultivated. But it's helpful to cultivate it with an open mind rather than a narrow mind. You know, people have an idea, you have to sit. Sitting is the only way you can meditate. And you have to do it for 45 minutes to an hour. 
Okay. Well, it's very narrow, that understanding. You know, and if you're working in an office, or you're working at a computer, probably the last thing in the world that you need is to come home and sit. You've been sitting for eight hours a day in front of a computer. So what's helpful is to begin to trust one's own internal wisdom and learn how to be responsive to what's actually needed. And so if you've been sitting still, maybe what you need to do is walking meditation, a very gentle mindfulness with movement meditation. You know, if your system, you know, one of my friends, she works as a, a, a physician's assistant in an emergency room situation at a teaching hospital. You know, and there's a lot of impact and crisis and a lot of stuff that goes on. And some of the things that go on are heavy, you know. And she just needs to kind of discharge before she can sit quietly. And for years she felt guilty that, you know, if she did something other than just sitting, that somehow she wasn't meditating. And so one needs to learn how to trust one's intuition that one isn't essentially evil and bad and lazy, but that actually one needs to learn how to trust that one's intuition often is responsive to what is needed and not just trying to get out of something. You know, for some people, qigong or yoga or tai chi is really helpful to establish some connection with the body. Or walking along the river or in the bush as a way of just allowing the heart and the mind to come together so that there's some kind of unification and congruence. So that as one does sit, one is able to be present rather than forcing something that isn't actually working. So trusting oneself and developing a practice, but allowing the practice to be responsive rather than falling into some kind of a fixed view about how it should be. And then the voice says, yes, but what would the Sangha say? Would the Sangha approve? You know, the voice, the eternal voice of judgment. Would the Sangha approve? Well, at some point, one needs to trust that the Sangha is resident within And if the meditation is opening and the heart is releasing and relaxing, then that is where one needs to measure one's effectiveness by, rather than the sense of what is supposed to be happening. Some people find having a particular place that is just for meditation very supportive. Having opportunities to um, make offerings or do things which are devotional, very supportive. Certainly the practice of dana or generosity is essential really for being able to connect us with our own goodness. And we can see after many, many years of spending time with different people, that the people who have lived lives where there's a tremendous amount of generosity have a resource in them that the people who haven't don't have access to. It's valuable 
in a way that's hard to even describe. So when we give, it's not the other person that benefits as much as ourself. And to remember that. And so to create opportunities for generosity. Think of them. Be creative around them. And they don't have to be a huge, it doesn't have to be an enormous financial thing. It can be a, just a, a thoughtfulness or a flower or at the shrine or some kind gesture for a neighbor or somebody who's struggling a little bit. One of the things where we um, get confused is is that we we mix up the difference between concentration and mindfulness. And because on a retreat there's not a whole lot happening and there's few decisions that we need to make and there's not a lot of of, uh, impact, the conditions are natural for concentration. And as our minds become clearer and the objects become more refined, There's a a natural tendency to associate refinement and concentration with meditation. And then when we leave the retreat center, we leave the monastery, and we're driving, and there's honking, and then there's sirens, and and then we get on the computer and we deal with 150 emails and the 235 spam, and you know we check the cell phone, and and then we pick up all the bits of conversations with all the people, the family and the relationships and the and then we don't experience the refinement and we think, you know, we've lost it with our meditation because our association with meditation is concentration and refinement. Well, concentration arises when conditions are right for them and when the conditions are not right for them, the concentration fades away. That's natural. But meditation is about being with what's happening. And overwhelm and confusion and disorientation are just as valid objects of meditation as pristine clarity, awareness of, of the movement of the breath coming in and out of the nostrils. So we have preference for refinement and we take that to be what meditation is supposed to be. And in that, we give ourselves a hard time when the conditions shift and the concentration is not possible. So at any point we're able to know what's happening, even if what we know is happening is that we feel a little bit overwhelmed or disoriented. Overwhelmed and disoriented are perfectly object, valid objects meditation. There's nothing about them whatsoever which is not a valid object of meditation. It might not be a preferred object, but it's a valid object. So when we don't confuse these two, then what is possible is the ability to be with what's happening without the overlay of judgment or expectation that it's somehow supposed to be different than that. And that's helpful, that we don't confuse the two. And yet having said that, I think probably all of us would agree that there is a value in learning how to put the world down. 
how to allow a day to end, how to stop the conversations from circling in one's head, to let things rest. And each of us, we're going to need to find our own strategies and ways that work. You know, For myself, I get caught out when there's feelings that I'm not able to accept. And then that stimulates thoughts. And the thoughts continue around and around and around and around and around. So if I'm able to go back and feel the feelings that I'm not able to accept, then it dismantles the repetitive thinking pattern. And sometimes the way that I have to do that is by changing the frame of reference. So if I'm experiencing a repetitive thought pattern, instead of paying attention to the thought, I pay attention to the body, or I pay attention to the emotion that's underneath the thought, I change the frame of reference that I'm experiencing it, then it unlocks, and it finds its release and its resting. Sometimes I have to exaggerate it. So like in my life, I had ended up with conditioning around anger and sadness. It's very hard for me just to allow anger and sadness. So sometimes I have to exaggerate it. So sometimes I sing myself sad bear songs or angry bear songs. So I take myself for a walk through the forest and I sing myself a sad bear song. But what it's like to be a very, very sad bear and how it feels. And I pout and I stick my tongue and my my lip out and I make myself like a two-year-old that's very sad. And I begin to feel what it feels like to feel sad. And because with me, sadness has been one of those things that was disallowed, when I do an exaggerated experience of sadness and can finally allow it into my system, once I allow it, then it's not a problem. But when it's not allowed, it's you cannot resolve something that you don't allow. So I have to sometimes exaggerate it. Give myself permission to feel it. And when I do that, the whole thing can kind of fall apart. I can feel what I need to feel, and the whole thing can just relax. So each of us needs to find the stuff where we get stuck and the kind of peculiar conditioning that we have and find strategies that works to allowing it to come into balance and release. And I've needed to go beyond the stuff that's written. Nobody, there's, I've never seen anything in the Pali scriptures that says, talks about singing sad bear songs. <laughs> so I've had to trust myself to move outside of formal, uh, agreed upon ways of doing things in order to find ways that work for me.
Another thing which I think is helpful, particularly since there's a lot happening in our worlds and sometimes it's easy to lose perspective, is to periodically come back to kind of basic questions. You know? What is life for? What do I value? Because we can spend an awful lot of our time being completely engrossed in urgent, utterly unessential things and miss the non-urgent but very essential things. And for myself, I find it useful considering, you know, independent of what my aspiration is. Do I value being a decent human being? Is that important to me? Independent of my religious aspiration or my aspiration to wake up, is being a decent human being important? If being a decent human being is important, what does that involve? Does it include the right relationship with myself? Does it include my family? Does it include the community? Does it include the world that I live in and my relationship with the creatures and the earth and my use of requisites? When I think this way, I have to say yes to all of that. And then I look at some of the things that I get involved with, or some of the kind of politics and the kind of views that are held or the stances that are taken. And then I have to say, is this practice, is this policy, is this view, is this stance that I'm taking congruent with being a basically decent human being. And if there's a conflict, I know where my priority lies. So I have undertaken that, you know, whatever kind of religious aspirations I have and whatever kind of commitments that I have in a monastic life, that it not be in conflict with being a decent human being. And then if it is, to question, what am I doing? And why? For what purpose? And that's helped me have some sense of ground when things get really confusing. I think I'll close with two stories. One story is about a friend, Max, who I met when I was living at the Watt. 
and uh, he's a brilliant man, unusually brilliant man. Uh, he was a um, a computer programmer and had been involved with designing a computer software system that organized the um, a, a, made a a, a solar powered motorboat. The panels of it um, moved towards the direction of the sun. And it was a project that he'd been involved with, and, and there was some interest uh, to have this project finished for the, the Sydney Olympics. And so because there was a deadline, there was a, quite a lot of pressure to, to get it happening. You know, any kind of project like that is, takes a lot of time. So he was the computer engineer, the software designer. He was the main person overseeing the construction of the boat, the outfitting of the boat. So he had a kind of mad year and a half preceding the Sydney Olympics. He was an avid meditator. He loved to meditate. And he had an aspiration to do this Nantian monastic retreat at the Nantian Temple south of Sydney. And on that retreat, you know, they, they, they take precepts for 10 days. So they shave their heads, they take robes, they take monastic precepts and bodhisattva vows for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, they hand back their robes, some of their precepts, and they don't get back their hair. <laughs> so he'd been looking forward to this for a very long time and it was the project was coming together enough so that he could actually go on this retreat so he was really looking forward to it so Daphne was his wife and dropped him off and he took his robes he shaved his head he took the precepts he took the bodhisattva vows Daphne came and collected him in his lay clothes with no hair and they were heading out, and they had to make a stop, and they made a stop and used the toilet. Blood. Everywhere in the toilet. So he went to the hospital. They did a lot of tests. He found out he had renal cancer. And it had progressed. And the doctors gave him three weeks to live. So he came out of this experience and he thought, you know, I've got three weeks to live. What's important? So he thought, well, you know, really the only thing that's really important is to somehow communicate to my family and my friends how much I love them. And the single thing that will support me in doing that is if I love myself. And somehow the mixture of his aspiration, the ripeness, the situation, the intensity, the pressure, the time limit. And it, it was as if the things that had blocked him from loving himself, fell away. And he was just resting in this 
sense of love. And medical miracle after medical miracle happened, and he didn't die in three weeks. There was a treatment that he was eligible for. There was a surgery that the doctors were willing to do for him. There was special medicine that he was taking. The cancer had spread to every part of his body. It was incredible. It was in his spine. It was in his heart. It was in all of his organs. It was everywhere. And he was luminous, radiant, Because something in him had on some very deep level gotten it. He wasn't going anywhere. And he felt a lot of sadness for his family having to watch this process because he understood that his body was dying and there was nothing he was going to be able to do to prevent that. But on some very deep level he understood he wasn't going anywhere. He was just resting in love. So it poses an interesting question for us, really. What's important? What's keeping us from loving ourselves? Do we need to have a terminal diagnosis of three weeks in order to see through some of that stuff? The other story that I like to tell also I find very, very moving. It's also a true story. And I don't remember when I first heard it or who told it to me first. But a man had a boy who was disabled, developmentally disabled. And they were going for a walk in a park. Well, actually the story is, is that he's at this school with other children were developmentally disabled. And he's speaking to this whole auditorium full of parents, developmentally disabled children. And he starts this speech by saying, I don't understand where my son fits into the order of the universe. Can you imagine the father saying that? in front of a whole group of parents who have developmentally disabled children. And then he goes on to tell his story. And he says, he was walking in the park with his son and there were some boys and they were playing baseball. And his son asked his dad if he could play. So what is the dad to do? thought, well, at least he can do is ask. There's no harm in asking. 
So the dad went up to the playing field and got the attention of the pitcher and said, my son would like to play ball. Can you play ball? How long does it take a kid to check out another kid and check out and find out that something about him is not right? One-tenth of a nanosecond? So this pitcher was looking at this little boy and was in a dilemma because he was asked to make a decision that was going to affect the whole game by himself. And he decided to let this boy play ball. So they invited him on the team and he was out in the field and he had a baseball mitt on his hand. He was grinning from ear to ear and he was on the team playing ball with the boys and absolutely delighted. He didn't really understand the rules of the game and there wasn't really any likely chance he was going to catch a ball. But he was playing ball with the boys and he was overwhelmed with joy. The game continued. There was innings. It was the last inning. And somehow or another, it was this little fellow's time to be up at bat. The game was tied. The bases were loaded. And he was up to bat. So the pitcher moved in and threw the ball directly at the bat. He missed, which was no surprise. So the pitcher took the ball and moved in closer and very softly, but very directly, threw the ball directly at the bat. And it connected. And the ball rolled forward a couple of inches. And he ran up to grab the ball and he turned around and he heaved it out into left field. And all of his teammates shouted at him, Drop the bat! Drop the bat! Run, 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 run over there! Run, run, run! Go over there! Run that way! That way! Go that way! So he figured out to drop the bat, and he figured out to run, and he figured out which direction to go. And the, and the field, field person in left field caught the ball and turned around and heaved it out into right field. And so all of the people on his team were hollering at him and they were chasing him around the bat basis. And then all of the people on the other team were hollering at him and chasing him around the bat, the basis. So you had this little fellow and he hit a home run. And the father of the boy was saying that when he considers the compassionate response that people offer to his son, it's in that that he understands the place in the universe that he fits into. Now what moves me about this story 
is that these were kids. And in an instant, the game changed in response to the situation. And what happened in the game changing and the rules changing was that everybody won. That little boy won. Every single parent in that entire auditorium won. His father won. Every single people person on the field who saw that game won. And every person who's ever heard that story wins. So it leaves us with another question. What game are we playing? And who's winning? When there is a profound understanding that when we play so that everyone wins, when we understand the path of love in its fullest possible way, wherever we are, that is where practices. We are living in the monastery. And we are on retreat, independent of whether or not there's a center or no center. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.